Well, occasionally I have a conversation that um, goes something like this. Um, someone might tell me about some difficult situation or event. Uh, it might be something that happened to them or something they saw on the news, some kind of suffering, and they'll say, how can you believe in God when there's things like that that happen in the world? Um, I wonder if you've had conversations like that. Uh, maybe sometimes you've thought that yourself. How can you believe in God when terrible things happen in the world? Um, but on other occasions, I'll have a conversation with some, someone that goes like this. They'll tell me about some difficult event. It might be something that happened to them or something they saw on the news, some kind of suffering. And they'll say, I don't know how anyone can live in a world like this without believing in God. Um, maybe you've had conversations like that. Uh, maybe you feel like that. So same kind of event or situation, but two very different responses. One that questions God because of difficulties and one that takes great comfort in God through all the difficulties. And I guess in those kind of conversations, I'll try to say that we can take great comfort in God because what we see in the Bible is that even through terrible times, God has not lost control. He's not absent, but he's present and though it may be hard to see at times, he is sovereignly at work to bring about his good plans and purposes. Now, we've been seeing that so far in this series in Genesis, how God is bringing about his purposes, ultimately to bring salvation and blessing to the world through the saviour that he has promised. And today we come to this story of Joseph, and it's a story of ups and downs, uh, but probably with more downs than ups. Um, but in Joseph's story, uh, we see how God is at work through all of it, even through terrible things to bring about his saving purposes for the world. And as we've been seeing each week, uh, we'll see this again today, how this story points us to the better story. Um, because Joseph's story is to point us to Jesus' story. And I think that as we see today what God has done to bring about his saving purposes in Jesus, well, that is what can give us great comfort and enable us to trust in him through the ups and downs of our life as well. So today as we explore the story of Joseph, here's our four ways that we'll see Joseph pointing us to Jesus. Um, first, we meet him as the chosen son of the father. Second, we'll see how he becomes the suffering servant. Third, how God uses him to be the saviour of the world. And then fourth, finally, how he's elevated to be the exalted ruler. Now, um, like last week, we are covering several chapters here today, uh, which means we'll skip over some parts. But my hope, again, is that as we see the pattern of Joseph's life, that that will show us more about Jesus' life and what it means for us to live for him today. So beginning in chapter 37, which was just read for us, where Joseph, we see, is the chosen son of his father. Now last week we followed the story of Jacob, um, who's also given the name Israel. And one of the things we didn't really spend time on was how Jacob has 12 sons and these sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, it was when Jacob was in Haran, uh, working for his uncle Laban, that most of those sons were born. And it's a bit of a messy story because Jacob has four wives, 
Um, initially, he's tricked by his uncle into marrying Leah. Um, then later on, he gets to marry Rachel. Um, she's the one that he really loves. Um, but also, as both Leah and Rachel, when they have difficulty having children, they give Jacob uh, their servants, uh, Zilpah and Bilhah, to be his wives as well. So in the end, there's 12 sons. Leah has six. Uh, the others all have two. Um, but Rachel was the favourite wife, and Joseph, her firstborn, is the favourite son. And uh, we see this clearly here in verse 3, uh, where we begin today, in chapter 37, where it says, Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph <clears throat> more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. Now, we saw last week some of the problems that uh, was caused by parents having favourites in the family. Um, but Jacob clearly has not learnt that lesson. And rather than keeping it quiet, he broadcasts it to everyone by giving Joseph this special robe to wear. Now, you might know on Broadway, this has become known as the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, I think that's probably an over-translation of the text here, but... Now, this robe his father gives him, it's a, it's a clear sign about who his father is. Uh, sorry, who his favourite is. And it's the kind of robe that royalty would wear. And probably it's a sign that Jacob is treating Joseph as the true firstborn in the family. And none of this is lost on the brothers. So verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And so this family rivalry is bubbling away and it's only made worse here when Joseph has these dreams and tells his family all about them. So the first one in verse 6, he said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Now, the brothers have no problem interpreting what that dream means. Verse 8, his brothers said, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then to confirm it, in the next verses, Joseph dreams again, and it's the same kind of idea. But now the family, this time, is represented by the stars and the sun and the moon, meaning that one day the brothers, as well as his parents, will bow down before him. Now Jacob here, we see, is initially taken back a little um, by his favourite son's dreams, but also, just like we heard last week, um, Jacob is someone who knows the power of a dream from God, and so he doesn't condemn Joseph, but as it says there in verse 11, he keeps the matter in mind. But what happens next through the rest of chapter 37 must have shattered all hopes <clears throat> that Jacob had for his son Joseph because we're now told of his brother's plan to kill him. Thankfully, Reuben in verse 21 intercedes to spare Joseph's life, but really only just, um, because when the brothers then see their opportunity to attack Joseph, in verse 23 it says they strip him of the, of the robe he was wearing and they throw him into a cistern, a, a pit, and then while they eat this meal, they have this idea not to kill him, <clears throat> but to sell him as a slave. <clears throat> and so verse 28, when the Midianite merchants came by, 
His brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. So here's Joseph now sold as a slave to Egypt. Uh, The brothers then come up with this plan to cover their tracks, to trick their father. They kill a goat and they soak Joseph's robe in it. And when they give it to Jacob, well, he concludes that Joseph has been attacked and killed by a ferocious animal. Now, again, it's quite reminiscent to what we thought about last week, the way Jacob deceived his father, well, now he is deceived by his sons. And Jacob mourns. He's uh, inconsolable at this loss. But, of course, there's something we know here that Jacob doesn't know, and that's that Joseph is still alive and that God is at work in this. And we know that uh, the God... And another thing we know is that the God of Jacob is the God who brings light and life, as we saw in Genesis 1, out of darkness and chaos. Um, Though at this stage, for both Jacob and Joseph, neither of them can really see much hope for the future. And I guess that's how the disciples must have felt as well after Jesus had been crucified. Remember what they said, uh, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, their faces downcast, their hopes dashed. We had hoped that he would be the one who would redeem Israel. But what had happened? Well, that chosen son of the father, he came to his brothers, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He'd left behind all of the privileges of his father's home. And he was rejected, sold as a slave, attacked, stripped of his clothing, thrown into the pit of death. And though he cried out to the one who is able to save him from death, he was not saved. Instead, he endured the cross. He endured the ultimate pit of sin and death and God's judgment in order to free us from it. And this is why after being raised from death and appearing to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus says to them, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. Now, can you imagine what Jesus might have said to those disciples as he began with the books of Moses and he comes to this story about Joseph? and explains to them how it's all about him, about how he must suffer before entering his glory, about how this is God's plan, about how he had to be mistreated and rejected and thrown into a pit before being lifted up and entering his glory. I hope you can see how this story of Joseph, it's like a little preview of Jesus, isn't it? It's like when you watch the movie trailer. Uh, before going down to the Forum 6 to watch the full thing. You know, you get a little preview beforehand of what it's going to be like. And as we continue, we see how the chosen son now becomes the suffering servant. So Joseph now is taken to Egypt. Come over, uh, just skip over to chapter 39, um, where in verse 1, uh, it says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt... And Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, 
bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. So this is the new situation now for Joseph and no doubt he would have felt pretty low at this point and he's probably wondering where is God in all of this. But verse 2 assures us that he's not alone. It says so the the Lord, um, <clears throat> the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. So wherever Joseph goes, even as he's taken away to Egypt, because he's one of the Lord's people, well, the Lord is with him. And the Lord is at work in him and through him. And for Joseph, the Lord's blessing is now seen in everything that he does. So from verse 3, it says, When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favour in the eyes, in his eyes, and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. So it's starting to look like things are looking up for Joseph, isn't it? He's making his way up the ladder. But very soon this success takes a turn for the worse because not only is Joseph a good manager, uh, we're also told now that he's also a good looker. Uh, verse 6, see the end of verse 6 there? It says, uh, now Joseph was well built and handsome. And he catches the eye of his master's wife, who says to him very directly in verse 7, come to bed with me. But Joseph refuses. He knows that to do such a thing is a sin. In verse 9, that's what he says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? But she insists, Joseph continues to refuse and in the end she makes up a story saying that Joseph has been trying to sleep with her. So then Joseph is falsely accused and his master puts him in prison. So where is he? He's back in the pit again. But as before, so now in prison, he's not alone. Notice the end of verse 20. The start of the new paragraph, but while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord has not abandoned him, and just like in Potiphar's house, or so now also in prison, the Lord blesses him and gives him success in all that he does. And over the next couple of chapters, we see that Joseph, by God's help, interprets dreams. And uh, news of this makes its way all the way to Pharaoh. So that when Pharaoh himself has a dream, Joseph is called in to tell him what it means. So come over to uh, chapter 41 now and pick it up in verse 17. Um, <clears throat> here Pharaoh describes his dream. It's actually two dreams. The first is about uh, seven fat cows and seven scrawny cows. And the seven scrawny ones eat, eat the seven fat ones. Uh, the second dream then is very similar. It's about seven full heads of grain and seven withered heads of grain and the seven withered ones eat the seven full ones. So it's the same kind of dream. And Joseph, uh, if you look on from verse 25, tells Pharaoh what it means. It says, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. And the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up after the 
afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. So you see what's going to happen? There's going to be seven good years, and then there's going to be seven bad years. And so Joseph now tells Pharaoh what he should do, that he should store up food in the good years so that it then can be used to survive through the bad years. And so from verse 37 it says, The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials, and so Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh then puts Joseph in charge of all Egypt, second only to him. Now, as Joseph looks back, I mean, in many ways, these years in Egypt have been the low point in his life. It's probably about 20 years. I know we've just skipped over that pretty quickly, but it's about 20 years since he's been sold by his brothers, falsely accused. Most of those years have been spent in prison. And often the way that we think about how things should go, I mean, we think that if God is with us, then you know, none of those kind of things should happen. Now, that if God is with us, then there shouldn't be any suffering, shouldn't be any pain. And when those things inevitably do come, I mean, what do we do? Well, we blame God for abandoning us. We accuse him of not loving us, not caring for us. But Joseph, I think, shows us a different perspective because, I mean, see how he emerges from this time in prison. He recognises that God is at work in us and through us even in these hard times. So from verse 50, the end of that chapter, it says, Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. Joseph named the first Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Now notice how Joseph, he doesn't deny the difficulties. It has been the land of his suffering. But as he looks back, he sees God's sovereign hand in all of it. He sees how God has been working in him and for him and through him and that his suffering has had a purpose. And I think this is something we can take comfort in as well, that God is at work through our suffering. And the Apostle Paul assures us of this. He says that we know that suffering is not pointless because it produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character hope. And maybe you can see that as you look back on some of the hard times in your life. Ultimately, we we know that God is at work through suffering because of the suffering of Jesus, the true suffering servant. And consider the fruitfulness of his suffering, that because of what he suffered, salvation comes to the ends of the earth. And we see that this salvation for the whole world is previewed here in Joseph. Um, So as we come to the end of chapter 41, over the page, it says that the seven good years have come to an end and the seven years of famine have begun. Uh, And in verse 56, it says, When the, the famine had spread over the whole country, 
Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in Egypt. But then as we continue, it's not just Egypt that come to Joseph for food, but verse 57 says, And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. Now, part of all the world that come to Joseph in Egypt are his brothers. And so in chapter 42, Jacob sends 10 of his sons to Egypt to buy food. He doesn't go himself and he doesn't send Benjamin. That will come later. But as the brothers arrive, we see now in verse 6 how Joseph's dream from so many years earlier is now played out before him. So verse 6 of chapter 42 says, Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Now it must have been on that day, with his brothers bowing before him and remembering that dream that God had given him so long ago, that it must have all clicked for Joseph that God had been in control of all of it. All of the suffering, all of the discomfort, all of the pain, God had done it. God had put him into that place so that the world might be saved through him. Uh, Joseph doesn't tell his brothers who he is straight away. Instead, there's now these next chapters where the brothers go home and Joseph arranges so that they need to bring Benjamin back as well. But finally, over in chapter 45, which is what we read earlier, if you turn over there, Joseph does reveal who he is to his brothers. So verse 3 of chapter 45, Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. Oh, sorry, verse 4. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one who sold you into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no ploughing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to save your lives by a great deliverance. Notice in this speech how Joseph can look back and see how God has been at work through all of it. That this has been God's purpose, to bring salvation. Um, To bring salvation from the famine. Um, But more than that, to bring the family, to save the family, his own family, from whom the promised one, the true saviour, will come. The one who will be the true bread of life. The one who says, come to me and you will never hunger. The one who will give his life to be the world's saviour. He'll be the one who Peter will say, they conspired against him. They intended it for evil when they nailed him to the cross, but all they did was what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. See, God never lost control his servant Joseph and he never lost control for his son Jesus later in Genesis 50 uh, in verse 20 again speaking to his brothers Joseph says you intended to harm me but God intended it for good 
to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And surely Jesus could have said the same thing to those who opposed him, to those who mistreated him and crucified him. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You thought that this was your plan, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. For this is what was written, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Indeed, that's the final chapter of Joseph's story, that after his suffering, um, he is lifted up. Uh, He's lifted up out of the pit. He's lifted up out of the prison. Uh, He is made the ruler in all the land, second only to Pharaoh. Um, Now, I don't know if you've heard this, but one way that I've heard the Joseph story taught is that that is also God's will for your life. Uh, That what God wants to do for you is to bring you from the pit to the palace. You ever heard that? Uh, He wants to take you from whatever the, the low point is that you're in at the moment to lift you up and to make you hugely successful. And all you have to do is have enough faith, just like Joseph did. Because what does God want for you? He wants to make your dreams come true. Now, is that what the story of Joseph is about? Well, I hope that in this series, that one thing that we're seeing is that whenever we read the Old Testament, before we apply it to our lives, we need first to see how it's fulfilled in Jesus. We don't go from Joseph to us, we go from Joseph to Jesus and then to us. And so what, what does this part of Joseph's life preview about Jesus? Well, just as Joseph was exalted to the right hand of the king and his brothers came and bowed down before him, well, so Jesus will explain to his disciples that this is what is in store for him. After his suffering, he will ascend to the Father's right hand and the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so where are we in that picture? Well, we are the ones who bow the knee to him. We are those who worship him because he has delivered us from the pit of sin and death and hell. And we are those who now live for him as our Lord. And as we follow him, what Jesus promised to us is not to make all of our worldly dreams come true, but what he does promise is that he is at work in all things for the good of those who love him. And that is what Joseph learnt in his life. That was the theme of Joseph's life. Trusting that God is is working all things for good, working his Sovereign plan to bring salvation and blessing to the world. And this is why even in the very last scene of Joseph's life and the way that the book of Genesis finishes is that Joseph, just before he dies, you might like to turn over to chapter 50 now, we'll just look at this very, very briefly. He gives instructions about his bones. Um, It says in chapter 50, verse 25, that Uh, Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. 
Now, doesn't that seem like a really strange way for the book of Genesis to finish with this story about Joseph and his bones? I mean, Genesis begins with this amazing picture, doesn't it, of God creating the world full of life. And then it ends with death, with Joseph, who was perhaps the most likely source of hope. It it ends with his death and giving instructions about his bones. But the reason it ends like that is because it's showing us that Joseph believed that God is working in all things to fulfill what he had promised. He trusts that God will come to their aid, that God will bring his people one day out of Egypt and to the promised land, to a better home. And that trust in God's sovereign plan, it was the theme of Joseph's life. And I imagine it brought him great comfort through the times of hardship and pain. And so what about for us today? What about, what about in, our, in our lives? I mean, is this truth of God's sovereign plan, this truth that God can be trusted through all the ups and downs of life, is that shaping our lives? It shaped Joseph's life and it also shaped Jesus' life. And it's when we look at the cross, that's how we can know that God is working all things together for good. It's the cross that enables us to endure whatever our future may hold. Because at the cross we are made his chosen people. We share in his salvation. And though for a little while we share in his sufferings, one day we also will share with him in glory. Paul writes this to the Corinthians in his suffering. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So let me pray that God would help us as we trust in him and his plan for us. Now, Father God, today we uh, do thank you for this uh, story of Joseph. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for this example that he is to us in, in many ways. But most of all, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and all that you have done for us in him. We thank you that by his suffering that we have been delivered. And Father, I pray that by your spirit that you would fill us with comfort and hope and trust that you are working all things for the good of those who love you. And we ask that in Jesus' name.